Welcome. Thank you for watching this teaching video from Oak Tree Community Church in South Bend, Indiana. Please check out our other videos and don't forget to like and subscribe. Our mission is to help people come to know Jesus better and love Him more every day. We believe this will not only help our own spiritual growth, but also help us better influence the community and the world for Christ. For more information about Oak Tree, please visit us at oaktreechurch.com. There you'll find past message series, online giving options, and more information about our discipleship process that we call The Path. Now, enjoy this message. We'd love to hear from you in the comments or the website contact form. Thank you. You'd think that the, the highlight of the book or the highlight of the letter would be sort of in the middle, right? You ramp up to it and then you work out of it, right? He put this so close to the beginning. And uh, like I mentioned before, at the very beginning, he's going to use some really cool words that he hasn't used yet. He's going to use some words that um, are not in their normal either position or not in their normal use, uh, the way we would expect them. He's going to use some grammatical tools here that he wants all of our attention. He wants us to just be like, I cannot tear away from this passage. It's almost as if Paul is saying, I am trying to explain something to you and I don't even have the words to do it, okay? That's what's going on in our passage this morning. We've been working through, uh, for the last couple of weeks, the letter uh, called Ephesians. I was going to say to the Ephesians, and there were probably some of the larger audience, right? The Christians in Ephesus, but I think this was supposed to go all over the place. There's no personal connection anywhere in this letter. It's very generic, um, but the, the whole point is that Paul is trying to outline this doctrine of the church, we talked about the fact that there are twin letters, Ephesians and Colossians, and they come at the same information from two perspectives. There will be times that you're reading in one of the books and you come across a phrase, you're like, I don't remember that being there. I thought it was somewhere else. And it is. It's in the other, the other letter. And, and some of the phrasing is, all, is, is identical in some places and very similar, very close in other places. And Colossians, whereas Colossians comes at this whole concept of, of the body of Christ, it focuses on Jesus as the head. And uh, some really, really cool stuff about Jesus in the book of Colossians. Just really neat. It's only four chapters. If you haven't read it for a while, it's worth the couple of minutes to just work your way through the letter of Colossians. The book of Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians, comes from the opposite direction, and it is focusing on the church more as the body than Christ as the head. And of course, Christ is the head of the body, but, but you really get these two letters that bring it from the opposite directions. And Ephesians really focuses on the body of Christ in practice. Okay, it lays out information that really, until the book of Ephesians... Some of this information was not well known or not known at all among the Christians. This was new information to many of them, new revelation. And so it's important that uh, as we come at it, some of the stuff we've heard, if you grew up in church, you've memorized some of these verses, you've heard these verses and passages, it's just sort of like, yeah, okay, I know, I know the book. These people had never heard this before. 
This was brand new to some of them. And so I'm trying to build up the excitement because it's not old hat. This, was, this is really, really exciting. So the way Paul was doing it was, was not just to grab their attention, but it was to grab their attention in a way because they'd never heard it before. And so he answers questions like, so what are we? What is the church? Right? I don't even know what this thing is. How, how does this thing, you know, you know where, where did we, how do we come into existence? How does it all fit together? How does it work? And then he spends a lot of time, especially in the second half of this letter, saying, okay, now that I've outlined some of these first things, what are we, how did we come into existence? What, what's the whole purpose of this thing? Now, how are we supposed to function? And he does intentionally do this on two levels. How are we supposed to function on the physical level with other people? And how are we supposed to function on a spiritual level with things that we cannot see? You know, one of the well-known passages is, is in chapter six, our, our wrestle, our struggle, our fight is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces. Well, how do we do that when we can't see them, when we can't touch them, when we know very little about them? How does that work? He's gonna explain that for us, okay, as we work our way through this. And so it's really important that, um, that, that uh, we understand how he's building this letter. It's very well thought through, which makes this section distinct. Because Paul is going to get so wrapped up in what he's talking about, he's going to, you can see at the end of the way the net translates it at the end of verse three, there's not just a period there, because there's not supposed to be a period, verses one through seven or one sentence. There's an ellipsis. And the reason that there's that dot, dot, dot ellipsis there is because in the grammar, as Paul is dictating, probably, he wasn't writing, he was dictating it, I think he just got so excited, he started going off. And he, I don't know if he lost his train of thought or if he just so scattered because he is so excited about what he's talking about here. He never finishes. He just sort of trails off and jumps into something. And in fact, I think, and I, this, I'll, I'll tell you, this is my opinion. I think that, of course, there was no chapters, but we'll say chapter two was supposed to start with verse five. I don't think the first four verses were actually, let's say, planned or intentional because the first four verses, uh, the first verse one and verse five start off the same way, and there's no main verb in the first couple of verses. He starts with an object of the verb in verse five, and then he fills in a bunch of stuff, and he rattles on, and he drops off, and he makes a parallel, and then finally he comes back to verse five where he finishes this whole thought. And if that sounds confusing to you, good, okay? <laughs> because he's, he seems to be all over. I'm not saying it's bad stuff in here. It's really, really good stuff. I'm just saying that I think there was so much stuff, and, and some of you, you, you understand, there's so much stuff that was crammed into his head that he was trying to get out that it just sort of... Uh, it, it's not his normal flow, let me put it that way. This, does, this is not how a, a, a letter of Paul typically works its way or it works itself out, okay? So um, I've been trying to give when possible in these first three weeks, it's actually been very nicely possible, trying to give sort of an outline or how does the, the passage break down. 
This one works as well. Verses one through three, Paul is going to outline our spiritual problem. What is our problem? Okay, you ask people that all the time. What is your problem, right? Paul is saying, here is your, it's a spiritual problem that he's going to focus on. What's your problem? Verses four through seven, he's going to give God's solution to our problem. And then verses eight through 10 is, is really a nice summary. And that's our theme for this year, verses eight through 10. And it's a really good summary of where we've come this far. And that's going to make a nice break point for where we go next week, where Paul gets into some of the detail that is brand new for these people, okay? So let's dig in, first three verses. Although you were dead in your offenses, as your translation might say trespasses, we talked about that, the step over the line, and your sins in which you formerly lived, according to this world's present path, according to the ruler of the domain of the air, the ruler of the spirit that is now energizing the sons of disobedience, among whom all of us also formerly lived out our lives in the cravings of our flesh and indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. There's a ton of stuff just in these three verses. Okay, let's see if we can think through them. I already mentioned there's no main verb. He feels like he's sort of rambling. There's a lot of, if you're a grammar uh, a nerd like I am, there's a lot of participles, there's prepositional phrases, there's relative clauses. He's just sort of hopping and linking. It's like a chain. And you're like, okay, where, where, where's, the, where's the verb? Where's the point? Where's, where's what's going on? And he just keeps going and then he drops off. And you're like, uh, you're, you're left hanging if, if, um, uh, if you can see it that way. But here's the problem. What's our spiritual problem? We are dead. That's the problem. Although you were dead. Although you were dead. Now, he does do this in the past since you were dead. Okay, although you were dead. But dead, that's the problem. Now, what is the image that comes to mind when you think of dead? <laughs> Rotting flesh. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> Yeah, but oh, that's what I'm saying. What's the image? Because everybody's going to have a different image, right? Beth, what did you say? Not alive. Not alive. Okay. Paul, you said something. Dead, dead. dead, dead. Okay. All right. Good old uh, 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 Webster Dictionary defining the word with itself. <laughs> X's on your eyes. Did somebody else say something else? Separated. Separated. Oh, see, now that gives us a different spin on things. All right. Anybody else? Yeah. Still, no moving, no, just still, okay. All right, now, I'm gonna go with what it's not and then what it is, okay? Dead does not mean, and this is, this is big, not just for this passage, but this is big in our, in our Bible study, and just if we, if we take it outside the Bible, this, this really makes sense. Dead does not have to do with non-existent. It doesn't mean it's not there at all. In fact, dead requires something to be there, right? If it's not there, we don't use the term dead. We don't refer to it at all, right? It's just not there. Dead doesn't refer to non-existent. Dead also doesn't refer to a lack of ability, okay? It may be still, you said something still, but that doesn't mean that there's no ability there. Okay, um, we have words for no ability. 
There might not be any ability, say in a dead person, you know, the corpse isn't going to do anything, but that's not what the word dead is talking about. We'll use other words for that, okay? The problem is, is that we are dead, but I want you to see, look at all the things that are going on with these dead people, right? You were dead in your offenses and sins in which you formerly lived. How do you be dead and still live, right? How, how, can, how, can, how can we be dead and still formerly living? That doesn't make sense. Um, according to the ruler among home, among verse three, among whom all of us also formerly lived. There's a word again. It's not even the same word. Paul used two different words. We don't see it in this translation or in a lot of translations, actually. Paul used a different word here uh, in verse three, whom all of us also formerly, uh, some translations would say be- behave, the word is really interesting. Um, there's a word that means to turn around. And so he used the word for turn around and he put again on the front of it. And so it's like to turn around again and again. It's like you're, in, you're, you're walking in the same thing. It's not just like living out. It's not just behaving. It's like this, uh, it's not aimless wandering. It's you're doing something and you turn, and you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again. This is the pattern of life of a dead person. Okay, you see how he's putting these weird things together. You were dead, we were, you were dead, verse one, among whom all of us formerly lived out our lives, but I thought we were dead, in the cravings of our flesh. How does dead have cravings? Indulging the desires of the flesh. How does dead have desires? How does dead indulge those desires? You see the problem here? The problem is if we think of dead as not existent at all, if we think of dead as no ability, no movement, no capacity, no capability, we have a real problem because these dead people are really, really active. Okay? Uh, Dr. Charles Ryrie, uh, uh, an old scholar from the, the, he died probably 15 years ago now, maybe. Um, he, uh, he was arguing with somebody who was saying, dead means there's a corpse, there's no ability at all, they can do nothing. And Dr. Ryrie said, you have a pretty active corpse there. Pretty active corpse. Pretty busy. These dead people are really active. They were by nature children of wrath. How can they be children of wrath? How can they even have a nature if they're dead? You see, dead can't mean non-existent. Dead can't mean no capacity, no capability, inability, whatever. It can't mean that because it doesn't make sense with the rest of what he's describing here. Dead does mean, Irene wins the day, dead does mean separated, okay? Now, let's take this out of biblical context and let's just put it in our regular lives. If something, especially with people, let's do people, okay? Because plants and other stuff, we've got a, it's a little bit different we can talk about in second hour if you want. In, with people and with animals as well, when you look at someone who is dead, I've been in a lot of funeral homes. I've been in a lot of funerals in my life. 
And I've been at many for Christians and many for non-Christians, people who do not believe. And what I have found interesting is that of all, there's a lot of differences between funerals for Christians and funerals for non-Christians. Okay, first of all, there's a lot of differences. But one of the similarities is that at a funeral for Christians, the, 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 the murmur, the, 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 the quote, the thing that people say a lot is, well, at least they are in a better place or in heaven or something. Christians are tend to say heaven, right? At least they're in heaven. Uh, we look forward to the reunion one day, that sort of thing, right? You know what I find at funerals for non-Christians? Many, many times they can have no religion. They can have absolutely not, want nothing to do with Jesus. They, they could have nothing at all. And still the phrase comes up, well, at least they are in a better place. First of all, they don't know that. It's a hope, and we're not it's the same type of hope that we talk about, right? A forward-looking assurance. They're hoping that the person is in a better place, but they're dead, how can they be dead in front of you lying in the coffin or whatever, in the urn, whatever? How can they be dead and still we think they're in a better place? Because intrinsically, somewhere deep inside, even unbelievers, people who are not Christians, maybe want nothing to do with God or religion or Christianity or anything, still somehow inherently understand this is not all there is. There is something else. There's something that animates us. The corpse, the body that is lying there is not whomever, uncle, aunt, grandparent, parent, brother, sister, whatever, right? That's not the person. Even unbelievers know that the person is somewhere else. You know, they're hoping <laughs> up here, right? So what has happened? It's not that they cease to exist. Some people, and it's a minority, some people do believe that they cease to exist. Most people don't. Most people think or hope or, or dream or wish that the something that was inside them, the spirit, the soul, the whatever, is now somewhere else, hopefully in a better place. Because death does not mean oh, they can't act anymore, oh, we can't play cards anymore, oh, we can't go out anymore. Death means something inside of them has been separated. The body is here, the physical is here, but the spiritual, the non-physical is somewhere else. And most people on this planet believe that death is a separation of body and non-body, whatever they call that, right? Okay, we know that inherently, we add these other things to it. All right? That is true, not just on a physical level, it's not true on a spiritual level as well. When the Bible uses the term dead in a spiritual sense, we're talking about a separation of a person from God on a spiritual level. This is why a person who is dead can be so active, indulging and living and behaving and wandering around and do all these things. Because a dead person is not just laying there. A dead person isn't someone with no capacity or capability. A dead person is someone who is separated from the life giver, from the living thing. Physically, our soul goes somewhere, heaven, hell, whatever, okay? 
depending on the, the, the belief uh, uh, of the person, whether they believed in Jesus. And that is the thing that animates the body. In the same way, if you know Jesus as your Savior, that is your true life. And when you don't have that, you're separated, and the Bible term is dead. So, Paul is writing, he says in chapter 1, verse 1, to saints, to believers in Jesus. He said, you were not always that way. Formerly, you were a very, very active dead person. You were separated from God, and you were living out, you were behaving, you were doing all of this stuff as you were separated from God. Now, he uses or he brings out four points. I just want to work through these four points here in, in these couple of verses that tells us just how bad it is, just what it means to be separated from God, to be dead. First, the scope or the arena is in our trespasses and sins. He says, although you were dead in your trespasses and sins, this is where we live, this is where we reside, this is the scope of our deadness. We are separated from God because we are still in our trespasses and sins. They haven't been forgiven. They haven't been pardoned. They are still on us, in us, under us, around us. That is where we live. It is a, it is a life characterized by sin, by trespasses. Now, it doesn't always look like that, right? Because there are some really, really, really good people in this world who have nothing to do with Jesus. It doesn't look like they're sinners. It doesn't look like they're trespassing God, his, his glory, his law, his everything. But that's why Paul has to say, listen, this is a spiritual thing, not a physical thing. They can obey every law. They can be good to their husbands and wives. They can raise a great family. But spiritually, they are in this, this, this arena where they are characterized by violating God's commands, God's law, God's character. And when we look at them, we see a really, really good person. And listen, they still have the image of God. Okay, They can act out a lot of good stuff, but spiritually, it doesn't count for anything because that's the scope of, where they're, of, of their deadness. The power comes from the enemy. The power comes from the enemy, whether you use the term devil or Satan or, or, or enemy or whatever. Look at how Paul described him in verse 2. The ruler of the domain of the air. The ruler of the domain of the air. Now, this is interesting because it builds on what we already know about Satan from the Old Testament. And that is when Satan and uh, the, the, what we call fallen angels, when they lost their positions in heaven, they were not confined to this earth. Okay, that will come later. In the tribulation, at the midpoint, the halfway through the seven years, they will actually be confined here. It will be as close to hell on earth as possible. Right now, they still have access to heaven. We see that in Job. We see that uh, in Revelation 12, actually. Satan is the one who accuses the brethren before God day and night. Okay, they still have access to God, but they've lost their position there. So what is between heaven and earth? Space, the universe, the atmosphere. 
okay? The book of Daniel tells us that, that the fallen angels, demons, are very active in the, in the space around earth, very active in human governments. And now, now Paul says that he is the ruler of the domain of the air. Okay, in Jewish thought, there are three heavens, three levels to heaven. So we have our earth, and then the first level is the atmosphere around the earth. The second level is space or the universe. Then the third level is actually God's heaven where God resides. So they are not confined just here yet. They are sort of in this area. And a lot of fantasy writers, fiction writers, Christians have, has, have imagined uh, how maybe they you know, rule other planets I don't know what they're ruling, but you know, I don't think there's any life or whatever on other planets, but there might be demons and fallen angels out there, you know, whatever. This is where their focus is, though. This is where the enemy is focusing, and he is the ruler of the domain of the air. By the way, quick rabbit trail. This is a fun thing that I just like to think of that you're going to like to think of, too. Uh, <laughs> this is what makes the rapture so cool. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're told that the, when the rapture happens, it comes with a shout, with a voice of the archangel, and with a trumpet, right? If Satan is the ruler of the domain of the air, and if we are going to rise to meet the Lord in the... That's Satan's domain. So in order to make the rapture happen... Jesus invades Satan's domain, and instead of coming to earth, which he will later, instead of coming all the way to the earth, he just sits there, and Satan can't do anything about it. And he collects us, and we go back to heaven. How cool is that? See, I told you you'd like to think about that. I don't know what the shout is. I don't know who's yelling. I don't know who's, it says the voice of the archangel. From a military standpoint, it, it, normally it sounds, it, the, the, the commanding officer makes the, the order. Somebody probably repeats the order and then you have the signal for everybody else, right? So you have the shout, maybe from Jesus. You have the voice of the archangel telling people, get out of the way. And you have the trumpet, make sure everybody knows what's going on. And then Jesus parks there in the air for a split second. And Satan can't do anything about it, even though he is the ruler of the domain of the air. I love that picture. I don't know if that's how it's going to happen, but until it does, and I've proven otherwise, <laughs> that's how I'm thinking of it. Okay? He's a ruler of the domain of the air. He is the ruler of the spirit that energizes the sons of disobedience. Notice. These dead people do have energy. These dead, dead people do have uh, a kind of life that is energizing them, that is working in them. They're called sons of disobedience. They're called children of disobedience because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. They are disobedient against God. But how, where, where does this where does this, this life force or this energy come from to be able to act out their deadness? There is, a, there is a spirit that is in each person. We call it the sin nature. We call it the sin nature. Every person comes into this world with a sin nature, and somehow the enemy feeds that, energizes that. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we're told that he is the God of this age and he blinds people to the gospel. 
He's very powerful. We do not want to minimize him. We do not want to uh, gloss over what he can do. He can blind people to the gospel, and apparently somehow he energizes the sin nature, the spirit that is in unbelievers to keep acting out their unbelief. We don't want to minimize that. The power is the enemy. The manner by which we, we uh, do this is we exercise, we act out, we behave, we walk around, we return you to know, all the things, our lusts and our desires. The sin nature that keeps getting fed within the enemy's system does have lusts and desires. Now, again, there are a lot of good people out there. There are a lot of good people who don't seem to act out things that everybody else, or not everybody, but other people act out. Okay, not everybody murders people, not everybody rapes people, not everybody does all these things. You're looking around and said, yeah, most people seem to be pretty good. But that doesn't mean that it's not in there. Okay, we're not as bad as we could be, but we all have the potential because of our sin nature. Everybody has the potential to, to act out any one of these things that we hate. Some people acted out in one way. Some people acted out in another way. You acted out in a different way. I acted out in a different way. But we all have a sin nature inside of us. And after our salvation, we have a new nature, and these two conflict. We have to work to, to use the same term that I've been using, feeding or energizing one over the other, and that's the way that we'll go. So we're exercising our lusts and our desires. And the result then is that we, while we're dead, while we're separated, are under God's wrath. And I want you to know that it's not just under God's wrath because we do certain things. I want, you to, be, I want to be very clear. It doesn't say that, that because we do certain things, we're under God's wrath. But it says that we were by nature children of wrath. By nature Children, this is our sin nature. Because Paul, Paul looks at, at people as being in two categories. He uses the phrases in Adam and in Christ. There's two domains. There's two uh, kingdoms, if you prefer that term. There's two categories. We all are born into the category of in Adam. And in Romans, Paul says, in Adam, everyone dies, separated from God. And separated from God forever. But in Christ, all are made alive. Two categories. All dead in Adam, all alive in Christ. The thing is getting from in Adam to in Christ. And that's what Paul is about ready to, to talk about here. But he says it's not because of the indulging of the desires. It's not because of living out the cravings of our flesh that we are under God's wrath. We come into this world by nature, under God's wrath, under God's condemnation, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest, even as everybody else. We, you, if you know Jesus as your savior, you before your salvation were no different than anybody else out there. You weren't special, okay? You were just like everybody else. The difference is not you and me. The difference is Christ. That's the difference. That's what makes everything change. And so what he does here, as he's still trying to get back to his point in verse five, 
he makes this really big contrasting parallel. Take a look at verse one and then down in verse four. And although you were dead, and it's a good way to translate it, although you were because of the type of participle it is, but I'm gonna shorten it. You being dead in your trespasses and sins, look at verse four. But God, by the way, the two best words in the entire Bible, right there, especially coming out of verses one through three. This is your situation. This is your problem. But God, but God, everything that we have, everything that we are, everything that we do hinges on those two words, but God. Best words in the Bible. You being dead in your trespasses and sins, but God not being dead, not even just being alive, but being rich. And not just in forgiveness, but in mercy. Mercy, sometimes the words mercy and grace get confused. Sometimes people use them interchangeably. There is a difference. They're sort of opposites. When someone goes to a courtroom and they throw themselves on the mercy of the court... What they are asking for, mercy is, I know that what you are about to say, I deserve. Mercy says, please don't give me what I deserve, right? Please don't, I know what I deserve. Please don't give me what I deserve. That's mercy. Grace is the opposite. Grace, we talked about it these last couple of weeks, is this great generosity this great characteristic of giving, and in the context of the scriptures, what is not deserved. So mercy is withholding what is deserved. Grace is giving what is not deserved. See that? God is rich in not giving what we deserve. That's what he said. We deserve God's wrath by nature. We are dead in our trespasses, our offenses, and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, so far, we have seen Paul using words, celebrating God's generosity, his grace, and I'm going to keep using that word generosity, okay? You're going to want to keep going back to grace. I'm going to say generosity because I want you to get that concept of what grace is. Okay, he celebrated God's generosity. He celebrated God's plan. He celebrated God's power. He celebrated all these things in chapter one. Now he adds a couple of things. He adds rich in mercy and he adds immense love. Now, most of our translations in, in verse four are going to say great love, right? His great love with which he loved us. And that's a perfectly good translation. However, this is the difference. I, I teach, uh, you know, I teach uh, uh, Greek uh, at, at a couple of different schools. And one of the things, especially with advanced students, I have to keep coming back to them. It's actually really cool. I have one student right now who is going through the book of Ephesians. So I'm getting this like multiple times in my own study and their study. You know, it's just really cool. One of the things that I have to keep emphasizing to them is your translation is not going to be able to say everything that you think it says. There are nuances. There's all sorts of things going on. And if you work in other languages, you know there's no such thing as exactly a one-for-one -one translation. 
Okay, you can't just go from word to word exactly from one language to another. I said, sometimes you have to get by with an okay translation, understanding that you're going to teach on the rest of it. You're going to expound on the rest of it, okay? This is one of those cases where I have to practice what I preach <laughs> to my students. The, tr the translation, because of his great love, with which he loved us, is really good. It's really interesting. Uh, there's this play on the verb he loved and the, the noun love, which makes it bigger already. But the word he used for gr that's translated great here actually doesn't, is, is not the comparative. It's not like good, better, best. It's not like, you know, normal, great, greater, greatest, you know, you know great, greater, greatest. That's not the word he used. He used a word which has to do more with quantity than quality. He, he used a word that has to do with how much, how great, uh, it could, it, whether it's referring to time or space or, or money or whatever in the different contexts, there's a quantity aspect to it. Here's why I bring this out. Because one of the verses that you probably know really, really well that talks about God's love for us is John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world, right? And the word so often is understood as God loves the world so much in quantity, right? That's not what it means. It's not this is how much love God has for us. That word is manner. That is, this is the way God loved the world. He gave his son. This is the way God loved the world. He gave his one and only son, his unique son. Say, so say, sorry, it doesn't talk about how much God loves us there in John 3, 16. But it does in Ephesians 2, 4, 2, 5, 2, 4. <laughs> because, of the, because of the immense quantity of love. Not only is God rich, wealthy in his mercy, but he has this immense love. This, 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 this storehouse of love that he loved us with. Can you see how Paul is really trying to ramp this up and make it big? I know I'm not doing it justice. I get that, okay? I'm, just, I'm trying to make it big. I'm not making it as big as Paul did. Rich in mercy, his great love with which he loved us. He continues to add, in, in the last passage, we saw three things that God did with or for Christ, right? We saw this last week. He, uh, he, he exercised his power and he seated him above and he put all things under his feet and he gave him to the church and all that stuff that we looked at at the end of chapter one. Now, he parallels those three things with three things that God does with and for us. But each one of these, he uses the, 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 a little word that says together with. Not a single one of these things are for us alone. Every single one of these is, is, is for us or in us or to us or with us, but it's only connected through Christ. And so in verse five, he made us, let me scroll up here. He made us alive together with him. He made us alive together with Christ. Verse six, he raised us up together with him. And also in verse 6, he seated us. And I know the net doesn't have together. I'm putting it in there for the parallel. Seated us together 
with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. These are some of the spiritual blessings that he talked about in chapter one, verse three. Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places with Christ. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, don't build your treasure here on earth, right? Where moths can eat it, where rust can get at it, where thieves can steal it. Paul said, listen, the real stuff, the real inheritance, the real blessings, the real everything are already in heaven with Christ. In Colossians chapter three, that twin letter, he said, set your mind on things above where Christ is because your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are already connected there. We have the seal of the Holy Spirit that secures, that guarantees all these things. So we look at this and we say, how are we raised up together with him and seated with him in the heavenly, heavenly realms, heavenly places in Christ? I'm not in heaven yet. I tell you what, if this is heaven, God needs to do some work, right? <laughs> right? This is not a good heaven. This is, we say the same thing about the kingdom. If this is the best that he can do in his kingdom, that's a pretty bad kingdom, Right? Okay? And I'm just talking about the weather, not even talking about everything else. I mean, that's just the weather side of things. <laughs> we sing that song about uh, heavenly storehouses laden with snow, right? Okay, It actually comes from the book of Job. All right? So I have to sing it because it's biblical. It's right there, okay? even though I don't like it. I'm just hoping that those heavenly storehouses are empty by the time we get there. It's all I'm praying, all I'm praying for, right? We're not there yet. We're not seated in heavenly. It would be great to be seated in heavenly places, right? We're not there yet, but it is guaranteed. Because Christ has been raised, God already looks at the whole thing and says, you've been raised too. But I'm still in this cursed body and we're still in this world. Doesn't matter. It's a guarantee. It can't not happen. This is a promise. These are the spiritual blessings. Because he's seated, because he's alive, because he's raised, because he's seated, we will be too. I think that is just so cool. See, I'm trying to, this, this, uh, um, the excitement that Paul has in here is just, is just really, really cool. All right? Now, why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why, why, why would he extend mercy? Why would he extend grace, generosity? Why would he extend love? Where does all this come from? Why, why is that even, especially if you're getting a picture of God versus us, and you're still thinking, although we were dead, this is all stuff that happens to these dead people that he's doing to these dead people, for these dead people, in these dead people, through these dead people. Why would he do that? Well, he adds another couple of, of uh, new concepts that he's just building onto God's character or showing us, rather, in God's character. To demonstrate, verse 7, in the coming ages, the surpassing wealth of his grace, his generosity in kindness, or maybe your translation says goodness, toward us in Christ Jesus. The word demonstrate means to put on full display. Why is he doing this? Remember, it's not about us. It's about his glory. 
So even here, he's saying, I'm putting on full display, well, me. Me. I'm putting on full display how awesome I am. You're giving me all this to show how awesome you are? Yes. That's what he's doing. I'm putting you on display, not just so that people look at you, but when they look at you, they celebrate me. It's like an art gallery. You go to the art gallery, you look at the art, you look at the thing, and you say, wow, that's really, really nice. And then you look to see who made it, right? Okay, like I wonder if that artist has done more stuff. You don't just stop at the painting or the sculpture or the whatever. You look beyond the thing to the artist. And that's what God is doing here. He says, I'm putting this on full display. So yeah, you can, you can look at how beautiful this is, but so that you can actually see the artist behind it and how cool this is. It says his over, it's not just the rich, he's not just rich in mercy, but now he says that there is this overwhelming, uh, 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 the word in, in pre-New Testament times, the word sometimes it had different contexts, but in the context, for instance, of an auction, it's the person who won't stop bidding. Okay, I want you to think of it as the person who won't stop bidding. If somebody else bids, they got their paddle up, they got their hand up. Somebody else bids, they're all, they are going to insist, they're going to make sure it doesn't matter what it costs, doesn't matter how much it is, doesn't matter how high the bid goes, this person is going to outbid everybody. And they'll keep going higher and higher and higher and higher and higher until they win, and there is no limit to their bid. That's how this word was used in the auction context pre-New Testament. And this is the word that Paul chose to describe God's wealth of his grace. Remember, grace is generosity. There is no one that is more generous than God. And if this were a bidding war, it's not. Nobody's bidding for our souls. But if this were a bidding war, Nobody could outbid God because the depth of his generosity is so overwhelming, it's so surpassing that he can outbid everybody and never even blink about it. And that's one of the things that he wants to show about his awesomeness. Isn't that cool? You see how Paul is just building this stuff in, into the thing? And by the way, not just now, I mean, it's going to happen now. We'll see that in the next chapter. But to demonstrate in the coming ages, that includes the tribulation, that includes the millennium, and that includes forever. We are going to be on display. The church is going to be on display for eternity as an example of how awesome God is. And how does he do this? By his kindness toward us, by his goodness toward us. That's actually a pretty weenie word compared to everything else that we're seeing so far, right? Everything else is surpassing and overwhelming and outbidding. It's like, oh, because he's good to us. That's like the understatement of the whole passage because of his kindness, because of his goodness. But in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, we find it's not preaching, although preaching is important. It's not the gospel, although the gospel is essential. It's not the yelling and the arguing and the apologetics and the debates, but it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance for salvation. Romans chapter 2, verse 4. His kindness 
his goodness, his overwhelming character of generosity and depth of riches of mercy, just ah, so much stuff in here, so much stuff in here. It's just so good. So he summarizes all this stuff. How can we package this together so it's easy to, to understand, it's easy to share? Here it is. For by grace you are saved through faith. By God's generosity you are saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. Now there's this big debate over what is the gift some people say grace is the gift. Some people say faith is the gift. Uh, some people say salvation is the gift. Um, if you've wondered this, and we can talk about it a second hour more if you'd like, but grammatically, and I've spent a lot more time than I usually do talking about Greek and grammar and everything. You know, we'll get back to normal stuff probably next week. Uh, <laughs> the, a lot more time. In this section right here, grammatically speaking, it cannot be grace or faith on its own. It has to be the entire salvation package. The package of salvation by grace through faith, that is God's gift. That whole package is God's gift. It comes from, and here's just how I put it, God's overwhelming goodness, lavish generosity, rich mercy, and abundance of love. And that's why no one can boast. That's why no one can boast. Sometimes we get such a small view, no one can boast because it's a gift. Man, that is so missing what Paul is trying to say here. No one can boast because we can't even touch his goodness, generosity, mercy, and love, and everything else that goes into this. And so he says, here, all you who are dead, here. He offers it to everyone, here. Are you willing to take it? We've seen this in so many other passages all the way to the very last few verses of the book of the Revelation. Let the one who wants it come drink of the water of life. It's available to everyone. He offers it to everyone, all who are dead. So what does that mean then? It's not from us. It's not from our works. We can't earn it. It's out of his immense generosity and mercy and goodness and love and all these things. So then do, do we have a response at all other than simply believing, other than through faith accepting this gift? What's our responsibility? Well, we're saved to serve. We are shaped, we are designed to serve. Remember, he's already put out this concept of sort of like an auction, this, this, maybe this artist who's displaying his work. And so now Paul uses that same concept for we are his work. Maybe your translation says workmanship. Maybe it says craftsmanship. We are his creative work here in the net. Whatever it is, we are his art. The Greek word here is poema, that we get poem. We are his poem. We are his, his uh, creative, I like creative work. We are, we are the result of his creativity. He's designed us. We're not accidents. We're not by chance. We're not evolved into this. Humans are not. Christians are not. The church is not. And technically, he's not even talking about individuals right now. In the context, he's talking about the whole body of Christ. But 
as we look at spiritual gifts and stuff, we each have a piece in that. The church is God's creative power on display. Created in, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not created to just hang on a wall like a painting so that people can accidentally walk by and say how wonderful that is. We are created to actually go do something. And it's not just that God prepared them beforehand, because there is a word for prepared, but then Paul slapped a little pre on top of that. He pre-prepared them. He pre-prepared them. All the way back, chapter one, verse four, before the foundation of the world, God appointed that those in Christ were supposed to be holy and blameless in love. And now he comes back to that and says that he pre-prepared before we were created, before we were born, before we were saved, God already had it laid out. This is what I want the church to accomplish. And within that, this is what each one of us is designed to do. Our responsibility is to discover and then do it. Can you tell I love this section? This is such an awesome passage of Scripture. I hope that you've gotten, you've picked up some of that excitement that Paul, I think, was trying to put into this, that I'm certainly trying to put into this to show you. So just three thoughts as we wrap up then, as we bring all this together, our spiritual problem, God's solution, and then the summary. Number one, if, you, if you've never believed the gospel, if you've never accepted the gift of God's generosity, you gotta do that. That's where it starts. None of the rest of this matters. But this is what comes with it. And it comes out of God's immense character, the depths of grace and rich and uh, mercy and all these other things. Believe the gospel, accept the gift. And for those of us, I think at least everybody in this room, as far as I know, knows Jesus as Savior. I don't know about everybody online. If you don't know Jesus as Savior, accept the gift. But that's the message that we have for everybody else right? Accept the gift. And now, hopefully, you are a little bit more excited about where that comes from and how big and awesome it really is because of this passage this morning. Number two, so celebrate God's grace. Celebrate his mercy and goodness and love. Think about that. Thank God for it. There was an old-time member here, an old member in our church here by the name of Jess Knoll. Some of you know him, many of you know him, some of you don't. And he always began each, every time he prayed, he always began in the thanking God for his love for us, for his concern for us, and for his goodness to us. Thank you for your love and your concern for us and for your goodness to us. Until my mind completely goes, that will be etched in there forever. I heard him say that so many times. He began every prayer with a thanks to God for his goodness to us. Celebrate it. Thank him for it. Don't take it for granted. And number three, we know that we're shaped to serve. We know that we're saved to serve. So let's discover and do what God has pre-prepared for us to do. And that's the challenge this whole year. What is that area that you need to grow. Maybe it's something you need to add to your life, subtract from your life, or just build 
improve the quality of that area of your life as we come to know him better, love him more, and as it spins out in our service to and for him.